This is Cabin from The Relentless Picnic. Episode 2. to Maine last week and right when we got there there were some problems right away like the water wasn't turned on and it wasn't obvious how to turn it on and we tried to turn it on and it wound up like leading to a kind of flood (laughs) and then we had to for the first time in the history of this house the nearly 50 year history of this house we had to get the internet installed otherwise we wouldn't be able to be here you know not without event uh the cable guy was super scared of us as we rolled up here with new york plates and it took a while you know uh, it took days to get everything sort of up and running here uh and it was cold and this past friday there was a fucking snowstorm that took down the power and so I'm sitting in this house without all the power and water, which is connected to the power that took so much work to get up and running. And it is a little survivally. Uh, we are collecting uh, snow melt to use in the toilet. We are burning uh, scrap wood for heat. <laughs> We have some remnant firewood on the property, but a lot of it is wet. So we're burning cardboard and enviro logs and things like that um, to stay warm. And and we are pretty cut off, cold, and disconnected. And it is just so clear to us both that this is a test. <laughs> that we made this decision to leave New York and come here. And now we're being fucking tested and or punished for it. There's no other, there's no other way to look at it. November, 2019. Virginia. Uh, everyone in in this house worked from home today. Dave and Emily both stayed home to work from home, and the young girl who just turned three, she stayed home from school. She's not actually sick, we don't think, but I guess like her problem is, um, she like for the very first time went on vacation, and then came back to her normal life, and if you can imagine. Uh, the feeling we all have of like, it's Monday and like time to go back to like life. Fun time is over. She experienced that like basically for the first time because she's three and was just like so upset about the idea of like, now we just go back to school. No more playing around fun time. That She just like, was like incapacitated by her disappointment. <laughs> so they basically decided to let her stay home and then are each working so that today will be the most boring possible day for her and she'll want to go back to school. So like if I start playing with her and having fun, like Dave and Emily are looking at me like with a little subtle shake, like, nah, no, 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 don't do that. They're trying to bore her to death, you know? Um, Which is funny to think about because like when you think back on your own parents, you don't always quite imagine them scheming in that way of being like, we'll give him what he wants, but let it disappoint him. You know what I mean? I don't know if you got that audio. That was me drinking a 7-Eleven energy tonic. I'm so poor that the only liquids I drink that aren't alcohol now are 7-Eleven brand 
because they're like half as cheap as all of the other beverages at the 7-Eleven where I buy everything that sustains me. <laughs> There's a big ass energy tonic for like $1.25 or something. And uh, it's huge. It's not so delicious that you drink it too fast. It's like, but it's good. It's solid. It's important with beverages. You don't get beverages you like too much or they go too fast. You know what I mean? That's, that's a long time belief of mine. Just like I'm trying to get less good looking, you know, just to make it, just to sort of get everybody down a notch. I'm purposely aging myself and uh, looking terrible and I purposely buy drinks that aren't great. Just feel like that makes the world just a little more manageable, gives everybody a little more room. <sighs> but I do not have a problem talking. What are men celebrating? Question mark. They are all on a committee of arrangements and hourly expect a speech from somebody. God is only the president of the day and Webster is his orator. I love to weigh, to settle, to gravitate toward that which most strongly and rightfully attracts me. Not hang by the beam of the scale and try to weigh less. Not suppose a case, but take the case that is. To travel the only path I can, and that on which no power can resist me. Thoreau thinks he's done as a thing. Mm -hmm. The path on which no power can resist me. Right. And he looks at other men and he's like, what are they doing? Nothing. I don't even need that. I don't even need that meal. Right. I don't need that fancy house. He's talking about like, I never fail, right? Is it in a way the self becomes the rule he follows? It feels like. I think that's the the obvious and I think right criticism of him. But he doesn't think that, right? He doesn't think that he's being an egotist. He doesn't think that he's being childish. What What yeah. do you think he thinks? I think the, there's a lesson for what might be the answer to next question in the pond, but I'm I'm wary of going to the pond right now. There's stuff to learn about this pond. It's it's a it's some people say it's a bottomless. Some people say a, this is one of those bottomless ponds, right? Which apparently is a thing. It, it is a thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he Thoreau, the surveyor, conclusively disproves this and says it's not even that deep. Although it is a little bit unusually deep. How um, deep is it? 102 feet or something. It, yeah, 102 exactly. But it's risen five since the time he's been there. So at 107, we stop. Uh, yeah, it. and it, if you if you map the it, the longest way and the widest way, those two lines cross. He's practically gonna you know have a great theory of the depth of ponds. And basically, I mean, he walks you through the surveying that he does and the sounding, and he has like a rock on a string method or whatever to to measure the depth. And I think he makes two conclusions from this pretty quickly, both of which I I find very important for discerning his worldview. First conclusion. That which you think is unfathomable and mysterious right. and fundamentally unknowable in the world isn't. And later on in the conclusion, he says, men need like these mysteries or whatever. But Thoreau is the bottomless pond right. debunker man. That's right. First. And then just real quick second, he says that this is literally a metaphor for understanding ethics and nature. Every pond's got its depths and they're not visible to you and they've got coves and bites and all sorts of different features and they're internal, as it were, because they're in the depths. The hearts and minds of men, too, will be solvable. Yeah. He yeah, really says this. You need to learn general patterns then you need to plumb your own depths. And if you're honest with yourself and, and plumb your, the, your inner core, that's ethics. You'll make the right choices. And if every man did that, we'd be fine. I mean, he really does not think that moral lessons can be learned by telling someone what the right thing to do is. I, that's, I think, definitely right. And he's, and that's, as you were, I think, were saying earlier, that skepticism is somewhat attractive. Yeah. The, the thing about theory is that it can become dogma and it, it just becomes abusive and an absolute barrier and eradicator of real, authentic thought. But also the thing about theory is that, like, it encourages you to transcend the practical to try and figure out and strive for what is better than what's before you mm -hmm. or bigger or more important than what's before you. In other words, you, if you believe in that category of things, something more important than what's in front of you. Yeah, right, right. It's all sort of here on the ground and, and in him and happening in like interactions, right? 
So it's important to not have coffee. It's also important to like pay close attention and to like d- discipline yourself in certain ways. You got to use your hands. Just why, real quick, why is it important to not have coffee? Yeah. Because it uh, changes your sensory perception, which he is very against. Because the sun in the morning should be enough. It's enough for him, you know? I, mean, but like he, I don't think he literally means it. I think he, he means it as a kind of, you know, example of what you might not see if you drank the coffee, you know? The coffee is an indicator of all the other coffees that we're drinking that prevent us from unadulterated. Yeah. It, it, so it's a reminder of how we're insufficient to be alive. His version, I think, of like ethics and, and the decisions he wants to make aren't really about a sort of a universal ethical thing. It's more about self-cultivation. It's clear that he doesn't want coffee for him because he can get up in the morning from sun and it's clear he sort of thinks less of people who can't do that, but it's not clear he's prescribing anything to them, mm-hmm. right? No one teaches the tree how to grow, right? The tree knows because the tree is a tree. I think he sees that as like a, not an example to follow exactly, but definitely a thing to admire. This is the, the passage from the end of the chapter called The Beanfield to support what, what Nick was just saying. The true husbandman, the true husbandman will cease from anxiety as the squirrels manifest no concern whether the woods will bear chestnuts this year or not and finish his labor with every day, relinquishing all claim to the produce of his fields and sacrificing in his mind not only his first but his last fruits also. Yeah. That that to me very much seems to illustrate this kind of like nature just just bees man you know they just, that just is is all the time and yeah. I just wish I could is and the true husbandman is going to is like nature is is like how how do you even begin to describe the personality that can spend a year and change really really studying nature hard enough that the records he kept about temperature and weather are like valuable scientifically for people <laughs> right. who want to see how early global warming got going. Like, it's amazing to me that a person can be that obsessive about accurately documenting what he sees and to totally miss the cruelty in nature, to totally miss the way that if the squirrel can't find the fucking nuts, it gets eaten. Yeah, he won't grant that on some of You know, he, there's, there's a block, there's, it's incompatible with how he thinks about nature. What, he, what, what the fuck is going on? Does he do much talking about death? In this book? He, the winter is always followed by a spring, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, the, the fact that he doesn't, we know his, like, brother died. Yeah. Brother doesn't really come. He talks about times gone by, that the things have changed since when he was out there as a kid. He's so against those people who would claim to have it all figured out that he ends the book basically on this, like, incredible, like, urban legend type story of a bug hatching out of the inner <laughs> sanctum of a wooden table. A 40-year-old table. Right, and you could tell by the like hollow in the rings how uh, long this like perhaps egg had been in the table and it hatches out and he says in the lead up to this image like who you know for those of you who have been here seven years you don't even know uh what kind of 17 year locusts are going to come out like basically he's like we're in the early stages and you at any moment could be in the early stages and who knows what is to come don't make the mistake that you have it all figured out the thing that if, that he is always afraid of the thing that he like distrusts most is any kind of system that limits the individual's freedom, right? If society can, like, fucking table the wood or whatever, but, like, we got to get the individual spirit out, there's a way. There's always a way to, like, get back to that sort of inner freedom that he trusts. Do you remember a part where he basically defines America as that? Um, I feel like it's when he's talking to to a Canadian at one point. I don't know if this is an actual feature of the book or just in my experience of the book, but this is a hard as hell book to like manage as a reader. The the chapters are of wildly different lengths. It's he's talking about everything in every chapter. (laughs) This does not scream of a plan. It doesn't. It does see it. There's a loneliness about the organization to me where you like arrive someplace and you have certain kinds of priorities, topics, activities, but then there's also time. Certain sections become time. By the way, this is that, passage it's in baker farm and this is also where a lot of his like anti-butter <laughs> talk arrives but pretty early on in the short chapter baker farm he says because he's talking about these i think canadians who came to america and in, in some part thinking that this was the land where people ate butter and meat and coffee all the time but the only true america is that country where you are at liberty to pursue such a mode of life as may enable you to do without these 
and where the state does not endeavor to compel you to sustain the slavery and war and other superfluous expenses which directly or indirectly result from the use of such things. Hmm. That's the true America. So you need to generalize your little beliefs about yourself and then you try to figure out larger truths and that isn't really what he does. And America doesn't ask him to. He needs to figure out his own truth. And uh, on the flip side of that, he also doesn't have some of the practical exigencies that many Americans have, like, say, children Mm -hmm. to raise. right? Or a wife. A lot of his ideals are predicated on, you could put me in any room, and it's just as good as the room I'm in. And that room could be a jail cell. And that's why I don't have to play by anyone's rules, because I'm good anywhere. Obviously, that's not a way that you can live if you are obligated emotionally or structurally to mm-hmm. care for other people. I'm free now. I sleep like a stone. <laughs> I, I wrote down at one point, I don't think he, Thoreau, knows if he's the hobo or young Dick Whitman sometimes. I don't think he knows if he's like the guy who's got it figured out, who's sprinkling his little insights, or if he's like just living openly and curiously enough that he'll be able to hear and find those insights. Right. I, I think he vacillates. He's the hobo. Through and through, and and even more than your typical hobo that you that you like imagine, he is so deeply invested in the idea that the societal norms that judge the hobo are absolutely like laughable. Yeah, that he can judge them. That the nature itself is on his side about who's right. Yeah, which gives everything an alibi quality. Mm-hmm. That like it starts yes. feeling like the values are as much defensive. That money doesn't matter because he doesn't have any. Mm-hmm. And all the stuff he's good at is the stuff that matters and the stuff that he, you know, he doesn't, he's bad socially, social nicety. That's why that's all bullshit. The the amazing thing about America uh, is that it allowed these educated, enlightened, thoughtful people uh, to arrive at unspoiled nature and sort of figure out what to do next. Asterisk, there was a whole civilizations there that they Uh had to destroy in the meantime. But like this Rousseau, the movie quality of the American experiment, he just seems to have all the usual blind spots of, no, the idea should be, in other words, not just to like think of this as a, a infinite forest where everyone can go and find their little nook, but to figure out how we're going to all be together and how we are going to like protect each other and what we owe to each other. Right. Um, that blind spot for him is not unique to him, but imagine applying this worldview to say statecraft. Imagine saying to the people that like they all deserve a little plot of land on which to do their biddings and don't worry, like be neighborly. If you, if your huckleberries don't come up, Baker's got huckleberries down the way, right? right? Like to really sort of institute this as a way of living and to care enough about other people that, that you try and, guide them where they are not as good house builders or like muskrat killers as you are. He likes nature because it's not society. It's not a community. Nothing gets in the way of the individual will. In fact, ideally, I think, you know, there'd be no government. There'd be no, no, I think he kind of likes that society is just up the road. Really? You know, the the new England of my imagination, maybe at a slightly earlier time than the time in which Thoreau lived is a time of like great civic blossoming. And like Mm -hmm. every town's got a library and a town hall and, and we're like really like trying to set everything up so that we are in comedy with each other and harmony. And he is interested in a different kind of harmony, mostly because he thinks that there is a deeper and truer kind of harmony that has nothing to do with people uh, that he can sort of glimpse and, and image in his own self. Yeah. And in that way, it seems like he's like he's he's trying to like bring the what will be the old west to New England or whatever. Right. Yeah. He really he, he really can't believe that people fuss over shit. He just can't believe that there are there are people who were who like, I'm sorry, you this is the exit. You can't go in this door. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like if, if that ever happened to him, he'd be like, I have seen entrances and exits of the world's spiritual globe that would rival Aurora in its brightness. Like he he can't believe that anyone would would think important anything that's not the things he thinks are important. It feels really important that um to be disillusioned with society didn't mean you were automatically disillusioned with whatever spirituality your inherited religion gave you. And it's really hard to imagine him without that spirituality. Yeah. Right. In fact, if anything, the, it's and there is something very American about this to me too, that that I, that I vision of sort of it, it being all around you, that there's yeah. divinity yeah. 
that is accessible constantly, that the real miracle didn't happen long, a long time ago in a story in the Bible. Uh, it's, it, it is literally accessible. You can go and see miracles all the time. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen anybody present such a like credulous Im- impression of nature, you know? What he really wants is for people to like wake up to how wondrous and, and imbued nature yeah. is and use that as like fuel to be fucking better and focus on more yeah. important things. And like th- there's something particularly American in like the evangelicism of that realization. Like this is like the burned over period in, in the North, right? Where like evangelists are coming and like converting everyone in the entire town. And then another evangelist comes the next year and they convert them to a different religion. Mm. Uh, like that's happening all over the place. And whatever it is that, you know, makes that great awakening happen in America, Thoreau is definitely in the same like current, but it's just directed towards a different spirit. And he's so wary of structures and dogmatism yeah. that it doesn't seem like he'd be like swept up in that or anything like that. That would just be more people telling you how to live your life. Yeah, right, yeah. Right, but, right. but like, like he, he would say that there is a thing that other people are taking advantage of, right? Like yeah. there, there's an upswelling of spirit or something in That's the American right. people that like sheep shearers come to, you know, take away. Yeah. And he, I think he's trying to like give it to them, you know, for real. Yeah. We're like saying you have to go to the woods and get it yeah. for yourself or something. And part of what these long digressive things that he's up to, he's trying to give us a peek. He tries to get us to feel the like wonder he feels with these like long passages about really detailed shit while he's at Walden, right? Isn't that sort of the dream here? Yeah, I, it, it, like like the dream is to be able to like go into your little cellar and see that not only have moles eaten like seventy percent of your potatoes, but they made a fucking house in the like the ones they didn't eat, and like seeing that as a like a learning moment, an example to learn from. I think that that's what his method would be. I think that's extremely generous and maybe true. <laughs> but ultimately, I don't think it much matters because he thinks that just like what he's trying to put on display is the living of his life. Like you were saying before, like he's got to figure it out for him as a marker that we've all got to figure it out for us. And I don't know that he really much cares if you use his remarks on potato sellers to tend your own house later on. I don't know if he has literally that much empathy. Mm-hmm. At least in the particular. He has very abstract empathy born from the the Bhagavad Gita. Yeah. You guys have found that to be much more important than me. I, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but there but this is part of it. I've been perverted by like education about what American transcendentalism yeah, yeah. is or whatever. And it would be a whole larger project. Like, I mean, and like, maybe like, it wasn't that thing that I think it is. I mean, it was like what American transcendentalism actually was, was like 13 guys in Concord, Massachusetts. And what are they, is tr- the, what is being transcended in this talk of transcendentalists? Like just <sighs> like a merchant mindset <laughs> or something. It's like if the merchants need to go hiking, this is like, I mean, they, it's, it's a, they're skeptical of authority, but they really think there's a lot of like potential uh, in nature. Is that really all? Or, I mean, maybe what you're transcending is, in a certain way, this mortal coil through a particular understanding of your your place in relation to nature. It's definitely about replacing um, the spiritual armor that Christianity was supposed yeah. to give a difficult life with something else yeah. that was purpose-built. Right? Something more animistic in origin. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, it's almost like as the Industrial Revolution is happening and the, like, um, the American citizenry is getting more and more into money, right? Yes. Then... It, as a bare minimum, we look around for Christianity to save the day. Nope. 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 And then we're like, okay, so here's what our smartest guys, who are all from Concord, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> like, here's what they believe. Here's what we believe now. Here's what we're willing to affirm. <clears throat> there is something higher than what you see around you, and you're not going to find it through trade and business. And while poetry and education might help a little, Nothing helps more than regaining the eyes of wonder that one might feel as a child or one might see in a bird. You have to connect through nature and then there's something higher. Yeah. Is that right? Something like that? Yeah. If you try hard enough, it'll come. What's the, and the only, and really I, and maybe there's just Thoreau as opposed to transcendentalism, but I think part of it is also saying anyone who mounts a particularly passionate rebuke of the things that all people are fretting over instead of focusing on more meaningful things will be particularly commended (laughs) as living well, right? Like if what you wind up at after your time in the woods is some kind of impassioned denial of the way that you were living before, it does seem like that's enough Mm -hmm. to some degree. Yeah, does he claim to live well? 
It's a good. That's an interesting question to me. I bet. I bet the jury was out for his duration. Mm-hmm. For his yeah. 42, 43 years. Yeah. I bet, he, I bet he always felt like he was almost there. And maybe that's the same as getting there. I, I mean, know. it's really like the Protestant work ethic applied to a notion of radical self-improvement through like aesthetic philosophy and uh, self-discipline. Nature seeing. In other words, this guy won't, he's got to keep punching the clock on self-improvement and viewing nature. He's a transcendental. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And he's basically saying that. He's like, I need freedom to my for my real pursuit. But you know what I mean? Like, also, I really do think also he liked that shit. Yeah, he did. Right? He's like he's like a savant about nature. I mean, the idea that the that this dude was paying such close attention to nature that he could like look. They say look at it like where a flower was in bloom, and he'd know what day of the month it was. This yeah. kind of shit. The story that Emerson tells about him like tripping over a log and falling down in a particularly hard way, and as he was laying on the ground, he like was bird calling. <laughs> or, or like naming the birds that he saw mm-hmm. from the trees. I mean, you can live in such a way as he did where one prin- the principal differences between the way you're living and jail is that in jail, someone hands you a meal. Yeah. As opposed to you have to go get it for yourself. And that's a very interesting conundrum about prisons and the way they work. Right. Yeah. That I mean, they, it's, it's, it's an upgrade. It meets all of the necessities. Yeah, we all have had that thought about how there's no rent. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you don't have to pay rent in jail, and it's a, and that thought is itself like a critique of our society. Yes, except you do have to pay rent because they fucking charge you. <laughs> yeah, I mean our greed is pretty extreme now. December, twenty nineteen. Virginia. I'm following Dave upstairs as during his morning routine to bother him. He's not wearing pants. He is pantsless at the moment. I don't know if you can hear that. All right, I'm now in the master bedroom. The master bedroom. Watching David put on his <laughs> so pants. So bougie. It is a little bougie. Hey, you are a homeowner, man. Uh, well, the bank owns the home. I just pay the bank for the right to live in it. Isn't that what home ownership in America means? Uh, for 30 years. 31 <laughs> is pretty awesome. Yeah, that's true. Do you think you'll ever own a home outright? Yes. Yes, eventually. Yes. How old will you be? Well, so basically, long story short is, well, I guess maybe I won't own a home outright. It'll depend. Um, all of the homeownership that would ever come into my life would likely be through other people dying. Yep, me too. <laughs> I will own a home if my mom pays off her home and dies. <laughs> That's it. Here's what the millennials are doing. They're murdering their parents and taking their money. But it's our parents' fault in some way, right? Didn't they ruin the economy? I, you know, um... Or is that too easy? The thing I blame my parents for... Ooh, this is such a good topic. You know, I don't think my parents didn't tell me about the value of a dollar, but I also think... They raised me with this sort of like disconnect from financial instability. Right. And I didn't save a dime in my 20s. Like not not a, not one cent. My friend and I would go to the bar when we were like 23, 24. And we would go the night before payday because we knew our direct deposit would hit by midnight. And as long as we closed out the bar by like 12.01, the money was going to be there. Yep. And that, in retrospect, is... Like I'm, I'm, I'm still paying for that, and I will probably for the rest of my life now. Yeah. So that precarity, that sense of like, well, I don't know. That was, is that our parents' fault? I still live like that, by the way. Well, yeah, and I just think like, you know, I, I've got two young kids, right? And I want them to chase their dreams and whatever. Like I really do, and I don't want to. I don't mean to sound flippant saying that, but I do think that like there needs to be a closer relationship to money. To money and to reality. Yeah, reality. I was going to say the precarity. You don't want your kids to feel the precarity, but they can't not feel it. Like, I'm not sure my folks ever said, you need to save two months rent. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I've never had a savings account more than the minimum balance in a savings account. I remember really clearly, just maybe I was like 20 years old, and my mom said to me, in order to buy a house, you need to have one-fifth of the cost of the house saved to put down. And- which I think is like solid advice for the boomer generation or whatever. But I remember just listening to her and thinking to myself right away, I'm never going to do that. 
Well, and, and, and I'm still going to have a house. That's what I thought. I was like, I'm never going to do that. I'm still going to have a house. How does anyone afford any of that stuff? I don't understand the path that a normal person takes to home ownership in Washington, D.C. Well, and I wonder, like, if credit were to go away. Yeah. Right, like, like not go away, but, like, if the availability of it were to, like, cut in half, are the home prices artificially held up by the availability of credit? Must be. Or would it just... Like, are there such rich people correct, out there? Who yeah. could just like, just like manspread throughout all the cities in America. When you think about the math on that, you're yeah. getting, you're paying three times as much for a much smaller house. Right, Dave's, I'm brushing my teeth. Dave's brushing his teeth is good. Good time for me to talk. It's my routine, man. I know. Uh, I mean, it just doesn't add up anymore. No. Like, it just the math on it. You don't get it. The idea that you're going to work really hard. You'll get a third of the thing for three times the price or whatever. Like, it just doesn't, it's, you know what I feel like? I, a phrase I use sometimes when I'm looking at the economic reality around me, I'm like, it's sharecropper math. It just doesn't feel like you can get ahead exactly. Maybe if you didn't, in your, maybe if you saved your whole 20s, uh-huh. if you'd been more afraid earlier, you could. But even if you did, that wouldn't disprove the proposition. Well, and, and let's be honest with ourselves. And um, if I were to shave, like, yeah. I'm, like, crazy. That would be to get me in the black. Right. I'm not talking about, like... This is true of all my really educated friends. If their net worth was zero and not debt, they'd feel so rich. Uh-huh. Just zero is the new wealthy. And, well, who's the crazy thing, right? We have fake net worth that comes from our mortgage payments, right? Right, right. So, like, to a certain extent... We have equity or whatever. If shit were to really hit the fan, you could sell the house. I would sell the house and the car, and I would be in the black. Right, right. Like if there was, what do they call it? And I watch Trading Places on uh, Thanksgiving night, and if they were to call a margin call, yeah, yeah, margin call for Duke and Duke after they lose all their frozen concentrated orange juice. Uh, by the way, Dan Aykroyd blackface had totally forgotten that. Oh no! Have you never seen Trading Places? I love Trading Places, but I don't remember that happening at all. Oh, extremely like. Dressed up like a Rastafarian. Oh, God, I do remember that. Yeah. That's, and that has no relevance to the plot. Whatsoever. They could have cut that so easily. Yeah, I got it happened, and I was just like, oh! <laughs> I officially predict that they will cut that from the movie at some point. They might. Maybe they might have to wait for Ackroyd to die. Hey, what's going on, love? I want to her. You don't want to call her? I want to Do you want to say hi to Adam? Adam's doing an interview. Can you want? Can can you talk to Adam about your feelings? No, no. that's fair. <laughs> no media. For many years, I was self-appointed inspector of snowstorms and rainstorms, and did my duty faithfully. Surveyor, if not of highways and of forest paths and all across lot routes, keeping them open. I went on thus for a long time, I may say without boasting, faithfully minding my business. Till it became more and more evident that my townsmen would not, after all, admit me into the list of town officers, nor make my place a sinecure with a moderate allowance. Finding that my fellow citizens were not likely to offer me any room in the courthouse, or any curacy, or living anywhere else, I turned my face more exclusively than ever to the woods. My purpose in going to Walden Pond was not to live cheaply nor to live dearly there, but to transact some private business with the fewest obstacles, to be hindered from accomplishing which, for want of a little common sense, a little enterprise and business talent, appeared not so sad as foolish Walden. Economy. Um, what some of Th- Henry David Thoreau's contemporaries had to say about him. Right. For instance, November 21st, 1848, Hawthorne in a letter to yeah. Longfellow. Yeah. Thoreau is to be at my house as he is engaged to lecture here on Wednesday evening, and I shall take the liberty to bring him with me unless he has scruples about intruding on you. You would find him well worth knowing. He is a man of thought and originality with a certain iron pokerishness 
an uncompromising stiffness in his mental character, which is interesting, though it grows rather wearisome on close and frequent acquaintance. <laughs> he also calls him very ugly in other places, but I find that interesting because he's talking to someone he like really respects and is basically is, recommending him. Now, I mean, yeah, this is what's so funny is like, you know, you, you should meet this guy. He's an interesting guy. He's a man of thought and originality. But he's wearisome upon yeah. further acquaintance. He has an iron pokerishness, with, which imitates the combativeness that Emerson talked about, and an uncompromising stiffness in his mental character. That's not usually involved yeah. in any kind of commendation of a person. This is what's so funny about the idea that you're like a tough guy who's Mr. Like standalone. Do you know what I mean? I need no one. And yet, it's like all, your, all the people who like you best are like apologizing for you in advance. That's not empowering. That's fucking weird. You should meet him. He's interesting. He has a certain kind of stiffness. You're going to find him wearisome. And ultimately, that would be because I'm playing a joke on you two. Mm-hmm. Right? right? I would I'd be setting you up to be open-minded and like inquisitive to a man who I know is just going to talk to you about pig milking. <laughs> I, I mean, Do you I'm, think anything like that could be going uh, on here? Unquestionably. This, this is Hawthorne all the fuck over. Really? Yeah. Like uh, there's some letter where somebody asked him to describe Melville. Um, this is Hawthorne describing him. Mr. Melville is a little heterodox in the matter of clean linen. <laughs> and like the... <laughs> He's dirty, in other words. Yeah. Right. And like the... But the I can't tell if it's friendship or like a certain bitchiness that makes Hawthorne say it that way. Right. You know, right. I, I can't tell if he's softening the blow or like, you know, in a way leaning into it to show affection. You know, in a way, it's a despite minor, the fact he's a filthy fuck. I I love him. You right. know? It's a minor flaw that signals at uh, the eccentricity. Definitely, right? like all these little commendations of him have this like set up for a <laughs> surprise quality. Right. I really think it's so I funny. Mean, it's a whole interesting question. I'm not sure we can resolve about whether Thoreau knew this and like played into it. But it, it's that's interesting. He d- probably did, but not because he had two options and chose that one. Yeah, that definitely. was the only thing he could do. Yeah, that's what I sort of suspect. Wait, who's who's the author of this? Whitman. It's from a journal of Whitman's friend Horace Traubel. It says Whitman was drawn out and gave his own description of Thoreau of his several visits to see him in Brooklyn. Thoreau had his own odd ways. I liked all that about him. But Thoreau's great fault was disdain. Disdain for men, for Tom, Dick, and Harry. Inability to appreciate the average life, even the exceptional life. It seemed to me a want of imagination. He couldn't put his life into any other life, realize why one man was so and another man was not so. We had a hot discussion about it. It was a bitter difference. It was egotistic not taking that word in its worst sense. So some, a friend called Corning breaks out. He was simply selfish. That's the long and the short of it. Whitman replies, that may be the short of it, but it's not the long. Selfish? No. Not selfish in the way you mean, though selfish, sure enough, in a higher interpretation of that term. We could not agree at all in our estimate of men, of the men we meet here, there, everywhere, the concrete man. Thoreau had an abstraction about man, a right abstraction, there we agreed. We had our quarrel only on this ground. Yet he was a man you would have to like, an interesting man, simple, conclusive. When I was at Emerson's, Mrs. Emerson told me Thoreau stayed with her during one of Emerson's trips abroad. She said that Thoreau, though odd, was good, equable, assiduous, likable throughout. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What is happening? What happened there just to... Well, first of all, there's a lot that's well said by, I guess, Whitman. All of that was a quote of either Whitman or a friend. It's a friend reporting a conversation where they finally got Whitman to, like, spill the beans. It's all, so the the actual opinions are Whitman's. Yeah, but it's reported conversation. Good. Yeah, I think Whitman nails him. Nails him. Especially in the early part where he's talking about the disdain for men, men in the concrete. The criticism is perfect, but he doesn't like, I think, when the other guy chimes in to be like, yeah, he's selfish or whatever. And so all of a sudden he's like, no, 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 in a high, yes, but in a higher way. And then he brings in like just basically anecdotal shit. Be like, like Emerson's wife fucking loved him. Like there's a kind of defensiveness on his behalf. Yeah. Or yeah. I feel like I've been that to for other people. Like I find I have to like find a way to sugarcoat the fact that um, with great interestingness comes like often a terrible smell and like bad house guestness, you know. I've delivered problematic defenses of you, kind of like Hawthorne <laughs> did. Like, yeah. here's the thing: 
He's a very interesting fellow. It, they, like, all, all this stuff rings really, really true when you have a difficult person in your life that you really want other people to appreciate the way you do. It's a really good point because you don't want to just be like, here are a number of criticisms I have of this person because <laughs> you're trying to introduce them to someone you care about and yeah, like yeah. And, and, and think in some way highly of. But at the same time, you're trying to sort of like speak as you and right. as the other person you're talking to and in a way as this like throw character you're trying to just adopt all these stances yeah. like it's somewhat surprising to me when Whitman says uh throw as this abstraction of man that we agree on that like he's just like he's right it's not that he's wrong right it's that his approach is wrong <laughs> right right because the I mean when you think about the difference of effect when these guys are talking about like the working man and the energy they bring Whitman versus Thoreau it's like the opposite and can I ask what uh, what are some similarities between we three and Thoreau either for good or for ill are there ways in which I think each of us in our own way has the conviction that we're right not in the sense that we have like know some uh, immense truth that other people don't, but that we know what's right for our lives, and we've already like long since decided what is right. Mm, uh, and I don't feel that really, but that is true about you, I think, in particular. <laughs> I was going to say uh, one of the things that makes me feel similar to throw is I'm actually not always clear <laughs> on whether or not. Uh, the things I believe are kind of alibi for my <laughs> ne'er do wellness, or uh, depending on the day, I'm more or less convinced. On I see. I'm also not a big clothes guy. Me neither. I do think sometimes I think that there are just certain things that like oughtn't matter or don't matter and that like attention being paid to them is some kind of failing mm -hmm. in general. The, feeling like you're privileged and an underdog is something I sort of relate yeah. to. I, I, I have an inclination toward hermitude that, that you know, I don't, I don't think I've quite followed through on nearly as much as Thoreau has, but there's a part of me that wants to get away from it all mm -hmm. like that. And I have to, and Thoreau reading Walden actually this time around was a great check on that impulse where as it seemed more and more <laughs> like, no, that's not going to be a good thing. You just find your problem somewhere else. Well, no, really like, and I, I as I've said on the record before, uh, when we were in the hotel room, like there's a kind of escape fantasy that I sympathize mm -hmm. with of like, mm -hmm going out into the woods and making my, just learning how to do all sorts of shit that I don't know. And in some way in my modern urban life, I feel the lack of knowing how to do a lot of things. And I mm -hmm. think, boy, but I'd have to really focus on it in order to learn how to do all these things. And one way to make sure you learn is to go and have to do it yourself. And also PS that frees you from like the monetary yeah. obligations of yeah, which modern life, which I want to be freed from. Mm one way or the other. There's a walking streak in Thoreau that I sometimes have where I, I get into a mode where I don't like getting any help and I don't even want to like even take the train. I'll start walking to like, I'll start just like feeling like it's weirdly important for me to be self-sufficient and alone. And so like I will walk home from a concert when I could have just fucking. And you know, and about you, like Thoreau, I feel like if someone were to be like, why did you do that? You'd be like, who could possibly impugn me as I communed? Like, I met four strangers and yeah, four exactly. new friends on the way home, right? Like, I mean, there's... I don't like to... It's very rare to hear me, like, in a serious way, be like, I had an awful time. It really all yeah. turned on me, and it was horrible. Like, I'll tell that as, like, a funny story, but most of the time, I'm going to, like, find my, like, positive zone. And be like, that's right. You know what I'd I mean? say that's true about you. I mean, there's a there's a sort of rudimentary anti-authority stance of Thoreau that I obviously that obviously resonates with me, right? Where he doesn't want to be pinned down by any man or institution. What what is the feeling of that to you? What is the feeling of that to me? Of being pinned down by an institution, like what is the thing I don't like? Yeah, like what, what does it feel like that you don't like? Sometimes it just feels like someone has a course set out for me, and that gives me some spine level anxiety because I just. The very idea of a plan ahead of me means a number of things. It means I could fail to stay on track, and that could be a real big problem, or I could want to turn left somewhere, and that could mm -hmm. be a big right. problem. And so any time that there's like... Deadlines, it, commitments, yeah, start to feel trapped. It's, that's right. And so I, I become, I think, defensively a little skeptical of all those mm -hmm. in a way where I, the, I claim to want freedom, but really what I want is for like people and institutions to just leave me alone so I can fuck off. Right. I think he wants that too. Definitely. And I think, so what I'm trying to point out is I think it's a story I tell myself mm -hmm. that's wrong. Right. Yeah, th this is like the level of detail uh, and insight into 
your own actions. I don't really think Thoreau displays, you know. What about you? Do you display that? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know that I'm arrogant and dismissive and uh, like vain and a lot of the things that Thoreau is. Yeah. But, but it, it, it bothers me and it, it seems like they seem like sites for improvement in a way that none of it ever seems like that for Thoreau. He thinks he's perfect. A specific behavior that I would like tie for myself to some of Thoreau's shit is sometimes uh, positive offers I falsely interpret as efforts to control or constrain me. Mm-hmm. Even like the right. air mattress. You're offering me an air mattress. I'm like, I don't need a fucking air mattress. I end up being rude, but I just, I don't know. It feels, if you ask me a bunch of questions in a row and I'm not in like a serious conversation place, I like shut down a little bit. I don't like it. Yeah. What's the reason why? I don't know. It, it just feels like your things have gotten demanding and right. I don't like it. That's I feel like if, if someone asks you, uh, Nick, direct questions, you do a, a similar, you have a similar mode. You'll look at your phone, you'll like take a moment before you answer. You'll do question with a question. That That's like the mark in a certain way of you don't want to be controlled. You want to make sure you have the hand of the rudder. Do you feel that? What is going on? I ordered a swarm of hornets to come. Oh, they like bikes? Yes, clearly it's bikes. You want to pose that question again? Not really. <laughs> Do you, were you not able to follow a question, Nick? <laughs> I don't remember the question. But you at one time heard it and you have forgotten? That's what it means. Well, that's what what means? That I don't remember the question. Not that you didn't hear it. I remember hearing you ask me something, but I don't remember what it was that you asked me. That's good. That's helpful. Okay. This was, in a way, this is an illustration of the thing that uh, Adam You've was saying. You've forgotten. It's an illustration of the thing you've forgotten. <laughs> you don't like direct questions or having to be accountable, even between friends in a situation where you're explicitly supposed to be talking to each other. You resist direct questions. You'll look at your phone. You answer questions with questions that are the same habits that I do. It's just slight reassertions of sort of control. Or independence. Sure. self Indi- yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's independence I, within the friendship, though. I worry about that in- instinct in you, though. The instinct to independence. One of the things I worry about you is that th- there's a. It seems like you don't want to show the cracks or the seams or the logistics, of the process of anything oh. or whatever. Like just you know, perhaps because like Thoreau does with his own life, maybe you've come to a judgment that it's just the categorical thing that's not worth talking about, or perhaps. Maybe also like throw you don't want to admit into your self accounting that there's room for swerves in the future that it's got to like I worry sometimes that you are exerting a kind of pressure on yourself to be finished to be finished yeah with yourself like kind of out in the way that when we asked when we got asked the question like what would you change about yourself you were like nothing I'm great <laughs> <laughs> I don't know it's difficult to describe the feeling of feeling different from other people and of having to find a way to internalize the differences between myself and other people in a way that's positive and doesn't mark me out as some kind of like stigmatic. And I think that that is a more like solitary process of self-development than it is for most people. Most people who, who receive what they are from other people, you know? And who you don't, don't, though. No, or I never did or didn't get the memo or something. Is it possible that you're wrong about that? That I do model myself on other people? Yeah. Because uh, I would, if you weren't in the room, it would be very easy for me to assent to the idea that we all, to some degree, both use ourselves and other people as ways wait, to figure out who would be. This is, this is, I don't mean mirroring. I mean being told what you are. You, you think most people are what they are because they've been told what they are? Most people yeah. don't murder people because their parents told them that violence was wrong and, and so on. I mean, I think, yeah, that, I mean, that, that is a very Thoreauvian approach to the masses, I would say. And it, you know, I mean, apparently in the abstract, Whitman agrees with you. <laughs> but in the concrete, I think you run into problems. <laughs> right. And I, you know, and as we've said before and many times, I think the risk is you don't see the reality and the truth of certain concrete people in the world if that's your starting point. Because maybe what Thoreau has to, maybe what I want Thoreau to admit is that to some degree, we are all not, there's no one who's just different than other people entirely. 
I mean, I, I yeah, it's my fucking hardcore truth alarm that I've set to go off when I arrive at the hardest hidden motherfucking player on the team. The core within the core. The, this is the fucking nucleolus, motherfuckers. Oh, yeah, it's the end of a detective movie. Yeah. China takes face down in the pool. <laughs> I I when I'm unhappy, I feel like other people are really different, or I I just believe in my sort of the apparent differences between us, or I start to imagine what's going on in their reality, and I believe I'm interacting with them, but I'm remaining still in myself. Because really, I feel like almost anybody, if I can talk to them in the right moment. I get my feet back on the ground. Almost anybody. Do you know that experience? It can be... It can be someone you're not particularly close with. Just sort of check it in and be like... You'd be like, oh man, it's stressful lately on these Fridays. <laughs> just like a total stranger or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Just be like, yeah, 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 I feel you, man. I, mean, I, I know what you're talking about, but I've never had the experience of being reassured by it. Do you think about conformity a lot? Like, one of the things that's weird about Thoreau is he, it's not clear that he, like, grants that it's possible that some of those people on the train, like, have their own sort of wild experience. And have read the Bhagavad Gita and have yeah. looked at trees. It's just so interesting because I do think there was a time in my life where I was thinking a lot about conformity and sort of trap of how even, like, yeah, even efforts to, like, not feel peer pressure conformity felt inauthentic or felt like trap everything was a trap and yeah. I found myself like listening to Britney Spears because it was like uncool and I was like I do like it and yeah. this is what real punk rock is or right. something like yeah. but I don't feel like I think in that language very often anymore as I've gotten old I think a lot in like I like the idea that you could wear a kind of false uh, conformity and, and work as a kind of spy in certain yeah. situations your own little secret reality and I like the idea that you could sort of turn up a certain I don't know Shtick, even to give yourself space. I mean, this seems to be what spies are, right? I, I think I really think that we're all spies. That everyone is this kind of spy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that everyone you've ever seen or interacted with is this kind of spy too. Because the 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 thing about caricatures is they have no internal life, and basically everyone does have mm -hmm. some kind of internal life. Right. I mean, it's it would be impossible for me to walk down the street without conforming mm -hmm. in some. Very tiny way. Yeah, this is like the Ted Kaczynski story. The, the feeling of conforming, even by stopping for like a stoplight when there were no other cars present, was not only insulting, but like almost physically painful, I think. Right. I mean, and it makes sense that someone motivated so powerfully by nonconformity as a personal ideal would go crazy. And it is in a much worse hell than the person who like uh, only vaguely realizes their squandered potential by conforming so perfectly. For me, that's a reason to dispense with the axis. For, for me personally. The axis? The axis of conforming yeah. or non-conforming. This, this is absolutely right. I have the, one of the things I love about the Pierre Menard stories, it opens up this possibility where you could just sort of, just take your most boring person in the world and just imagine that they're a fucking genius that's sort of fucking with everyone. And it, a lot of times it is almost believable. It really is true that if you give people a lot of credit, they might get more interesting. And if you give people no credit, they get less and less interesting. And I try, when I'm like really fucking struggling, I try to find new ways to see other people and, and new ways of seeing myself, not mm -hmm. to fake things, but because I think I worry that we all miss the stuff. Having that passion for ordinary people's experience and the... Like urge to elevate it is like just as much relevant and interesting and diagnostic as anything like a guy with a degree might say about the world. Right. Like that seems incredibly admirable to me, and I really wish that I was not so selfish. That um, it would, that I, I wish it were easier to imagine doing that mm -hmm. with my life. You know, I mean that's that's how I think. Uh, that's how I think of most interactions I'm having. Mm -hmm. Is that we are two ordinary people here.
a relentless picnic. Um, I've had some weird things happen to me in the past hour. I've, I'm in day six of being alone in my apartment. I've left temporarily just to get, you know, small items, but I've been noticing for the past four days that I was having a really weird case of short-term memory loss. I would, you know, put things down in my apartment and not be able to find them, um, which, you know, at first I took it up to the fact that I'm never regularly at my apartment um, during the day, but it started to happen more often. I would forget where I would put things in my small one-bedroom apartment. Um, generally, I've had a foggy mind, um, chalk it up to malaise, been starting to get headaches, and... You know, I didn't really know what the symptoms were of COVID at first, but was starting to get very anxious, had very weird changes in appetite, and, you know, it made me scared to leave. Um, I haven't left my apartment for the past two days, haven't spoke to anyone in person, um, and I got a call an hour ago from my landlord that there's... There has been a gas leak in my apartment for four days. Um, and they were just telling me about it now. So mm, I guess I'm okay besides the gas leak. And I feel like the moral is either way, fuck landlords and fuck being inside and fuck not being informed. <laughs> The appeal that this figure has, that that Thoreau has to like readers across the generations, do you? How much of it is about like, oh, I too like nature. How much of it is about frustration with society? If his central premise is something like, look, what I most want you to do is live a life of purpose, and it's society makes that hard strategically, and nature makes that a little easier. Or I don't even know if they have a relation. Nature's there anyway <laughs> yeah. to remind you about things. Right. Um, as a symbol for that sort of mission, I could imagine it being as a placeholder, inspiring to people frustrated by the strictures of society and also people who feel pulled toward nature without necessarily society's blessing for that in any kind of way. You know, it seems like people, when you hear people talking about why they like it, they talk about it like it's poetry, like that it's not really the content of the thought or, or whatever. It's like, man, his descriptions somehow are, like, breathtaking. And they no, awaken yeah. this. And, I mean, there are moments that I thought were cool, I guess. There are parts where, like, he's describing the people, the the ice harvesting business. <laughs> yeah. Now, I happen to think that was interesting, much more so than the bean section, say, or, I don't know, the section about... There are just a lot of sections where he's describing various fucking things and his measurements. Yeah. And, like, most of them... I did not feel particularly pulled into, but I was like sort of amazed by the description of all these like Boston workers coming to the frozen pond Mm -hmm. and going off with the ice and how long the ice lasts. I'm like, this is astounding. There is a kind of poetry in this site. (laughs) Like I, I, you know, it was such from such a weird time and like some of the descriptions of the train I could sort of get, but I imagine the people who love this book must've been feeling that all along somehow, this gritty, tangible, poetic sense of, of viewpoint or something. I think there are moments of poetic payoff, especially toward the end. Mm-hmm. Right. And there are sort of fun anecdotal, like isn't society the worst things to lure me in toward right. the beginning. There's something fragile about Thoreau's extremism that's sort of hard to hard for me to describe, but it's like if you need to like be alone and you can't drink coffee and you have to eat all these different things and you have to be the like so noticeably disheveled to in order to have like not be caught up in the customs of men. It just makes me feel like like his nature wasn't as like strong as he might have hoped. Yeah. Or, or this is just what happens when you tie the intellectual content of your life to something as prototypically 
labile is nature, right? But I do think, and maybe he is aware of this, uh, that it might, the, the origin story of an Emerson say might be in that very same phenomenon where like, wow, a gust of wind just blew. And I, now I see everything a little bit differently. Yeah. And my mood changed. And then you sort of like ruminate on that and make it into poetry. Yeah. Um, as opposed to sort of just poetically journaling or something. He feels like he, he caught like a glimpse of something that other people wouldn't see clearly for like a hundred years. And it's, it's something to do with um, remaking American democracy along a consumerist basis rather than like industry or whatever. And like he, I think he seems to predict a lot of the weird discontents that'll come of that. There's something incomplete about the experiment, the individual experiment part of this, where it doesn't, it's not clear what he learned, really. Mm -hmm. It's not well articulated or structured in terms of its argument. So even when there's great, I think vital critiques where he's he says yeah. trade curses everything it touches. Mm -hmm. He talks about like the danger of luxury. He talks about the important, you know what I'm saying? The ways in which we degrade one another, the ways in which we need to protect like our highest aspiration, all that stuff. But it's mixed in with stuff I don't think is that important and it isn't organized that well. And it, but what's funny to me is that might be why it's inviting to some people in some ways. Maybe that isn't what people want. I mean, from the bio, um, he sweated over Walden. Like, that that was not just, oh, here's my journal from the first half and here's my journal from the second half. Right. Like a book. Like, that shit was rewritten 20, 30 times. Right. Uh, like, the ordering was really, really labored over. So it's all meaningful to him. Right. And that might be the problem. <laughs> because when, when you're as... When you're leaning into your idiosyncrasy as much as Thoreau seems always to have done, even when it would be better for him not to do it, mm -hmm. um, you don't really have control over when you're going to do a grand dramatic gesture with a fucking um, map of Walden Pond subsurface, you know? And when the content of that text that he keeps meticulously re rearranging is mostly centered around this is the doing that it, where I found my meaning, I really don't know what he wanted a reader to do or and right. I don't get the sense that he much cares. Yeah. <laughs> and look, that's not unworthy. To yeah. you did a thing for you. This is the document of it. I mean th this is a thing that makes Adam's point about him being a performance artist before the name kind of appropriate yeah. that like his life was the work to him, I yeah. think. Yeah. You guys figure it out. It's not I'm not I'm not going to solve my life for you. That's the yeah. whole point. I mean there is something valuable to me no matter how boring Walden is. That like it's a rigorously personal book. Like the only thing it doesn't talk about is shitting and or like getting sad. Yeah. <laughs> or his brother. <laughs> yeah. Why doesn't he talk about the other people in his life? Isn't it weird? Because Everything it, is anecdotal. He doesn't they're, name they're, not, they're not real for him in the way that a vol is real. I don't, I don't think that's, I just can't believe that that's true. There are all these letters and these people are in the journals. I think he's made some kind of decision that you can talk about the self without real history, without, the interweb of social relations. And I think that's part of what bothers me about it. I think he sees his family as a vestigial relationship that he wishes he were strong enough to purge. What on earth would make you say that? Just like the, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that um, his brother dies tragically of, of fucking tetanus horribly and like throws there like holding his hand as the brother's hand is like cutting off his circulation with the muscle spasms. Yeah. And like, that's the last we ever hear about Thoreau's brother. <laughs> I mean, we should say that um, Thoreau's brother dies in 1842. He goes to the pond in 1845. And while he's at the pond, he writes about a trip that he took in 1839 with his brother. And it becomes a week on the Concord and Merrimack rivers, which a lot of people say is sort of like an elegy to his brother. The, the guy seemed to have an incredible ability to look into himself, but it stopped when, like, there's, no, there's nothing in nature to make a person feel better after their brother dies in front of them. Yeah. Just hear me out. Why do we think he had an incredible ability to look into himself? Because he is able to go to a shack in the woods and look at ants fighting each other exactly. and write about it. And, and I guess to the extent that looking at nature is looking into yourself, and he has a whole philosophy where... There is an extent to which looking at nature is looking at yourself. Yeah. That's how he's 
choosing to roll. Yeah, yeah, he heals through nature. He doesn't become healthy. I I tried to suggest earlier that there was something sort of fragile about yeah, his ab- extremism, unquestionably. And, and this, what I mean to say is, I think I think it's problematic to use nature as this sort of proxy for self knowledge and his ability to control himself by like resisting certain kinds of foods or going out to the cabin or whatever it is, doesn't feel like truly frees him to me. And the fact that he's not talking about family or the people he knows, except in a very strange anecdotal way Mm -hmm. that everyone comes up as like a caricature. Yeah. It feels evasive for me. He is the only man to get to the bottom of the bottomless pond. I was thinking uh, I had an idea for a book last night. Uh, it, it would be called Bad Faith. How the frustrating discussions at the end of my marriage prepared me to understand Republicans. <laughs> it would be entirely about what it's like to talk to somebody who has an argument or like a case they're making, but it isn't what's really going on, nor are they persuadable, nor is it helpful or useful to in any way try to understand or rationally analyze the argument you're being presented with. I have been up against this. What a terrible brick wall discussion this is. Why does it feel so familiar? And I was like, oh, I know why it's familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know there was something called the Irish elk, and it, uh, it's it like basically the males were able to successfully mate based on how incredibly like ornate and intricate and elaborate their giant antlers were. Like the babe elks were like, uh, oh my god, look at those giant intricate antlers! I gotta get with him. So they kept getting like more and more elaborate um, antlers. So big, so ridiculous were these antlers. They'd like get caught in trees. And then, so anyway, they went extinct. <laughs>